Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm looking at Genesis chapter 39 in my Bible, and that is where we will be for the entirety of the lesson. And so if you'll crank a Bible open to Genesis chapter 39 and just stay parked right there, that's where we'll be working from in the Word of God over the course of these next few minutes. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 39, I'll join in the welcome that's been extended to you already. It is great to see everybody today. It is a wonderful first day of the week that God has granted unto us, and what a privilege it is that we're able to assemble in His name and to be here together, to worship together, to uh, encourage one another for this uh, time here, this time period that we have here on Sunday morning. I'm so glad that you've chose to be a part of, of our uh, service this morning. We do have guests and visitors and folks from out of town, and we're really grateful for your presence. You encourage us and you honor us, but more importantly, you honor the Lord uh, by being here today. In Genesis, the 39th chapter, I want to get right to it this morning. This is part of our Bible reading schedule for this week. As we're going to begin this week reading the story of Joseph in earnest. And at the beginning of the year, when I was sitting down and penciling in some sermon ideas that I wanted to have to coincide with the Bible reading, I knew that this was going to be a necessary stop this year. And so let's read in Genesis chapter 39. I want to set things up by reading just the first seven verses, if we can. In Genesis 39, beginning in verse 1, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, so that he became a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. He made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he owned, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything that he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. I'm going to imagine, I'm going to guess that not any of us will ever find ourselves in a situation that looks exactly like this one. Think about it, sold into slavery, captive in a foreign land employed in the house of a high-ranking government official, and then harassed on the job by the master's wife. I don't think it's likely that any of us will ever experience a scenario just like this one. Having said that, I do think that all of us fight the battle that's being described right here in Genesis chapter 39. In fact, it is a battle that you and I fight every single day, if not every moment of every single day. It is the battle with temptation. That is the assault that the enemy is waging against you and I to lure us away from the path that God would have us to travel and to have us go off in a direction that leads to pain and to sorrow and to destruction. And that temptation can take on any number of forms. Sometimes that temptation takes on the form of something that, that we might deem to be relatively small and minor, maybe, maybe being a little bit dishonest with the boss about why we were late for work. 
Maybe sometimes that temptation takes on the form of something that we would deem to be large and potentially catastrophic, like, like the decision to be unfaithful to our spouse. Or maybe that temptation is somewhere that lies between those two extremes. But all of us understand about the constant battle that we are engaged in with the temptation to sin. Satan is absolutely relentless in his assault on the people of God. Which means that all of us in this room, young and old alike, we know firsthand the struggle that that creates in our daily walk with God. Would you like some help with that? I know that I sure would. Would you like maybe some strategies, some insider tips that will help with developing a plan of action, a battle plan for whenever the enemy does strike? Well, then let me offer to you this morning Genesis the 39th chapter. And let me direct your attention to what I'm simply going to call Joseph's Guide for Battling Temptation. This story in Genesis 39, it is so famous, it is so powerful, and it is so profound. And the reason that it serves as an excellent template for battling temptation is because Joseph does so well. In the middle of incredibly adverse circumstances, Joseph models for us what it means to stand firm when the enemy attacks. And this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to just use Genesis chapter 39 to try and extrapolate about five things that Joseph's story shows us that will help to equip us in engaging that battle. Appreciate very much Rick leading that song for us a moment ago, number 442, Yield Not to Temptation. That song really helps to get our minds going in the direction that I want us to be thinking about. I hope you paid attention to the words of that song. That song talks about several ideas that do help us in the battle with temptation. Ask the Savior to help you. That's talking about prayer. Prayer is so important in our battle against sin. Shun evil companions. Stay away from people and places and situations that are going to intentionally place you in harm's way. Those are all important ideas. But I believe Joseph's story is really going to provide us with even more ammunition. Maybe even a thing or two that you haven't really thought about before. Joseph's story is going to help us so that we can indeed stand firm and resist temptation. Are you ready for that? I believe the very first thing that Genesis chapter 39 shows us is that if we are going to successfully resist temptation, then that means we're going to need, we're going to need to know when we are at risk. Can you see how Joseph is at risk here in this point in his life? Do you see that in this story? I actually think there's several indications just from those first seven verses that shows us that Joseph is in grave danger. He's in a real serious predicament and situation here. First of all, we know that Joseph is a young man. Go back to Genesis chapter 37. We read about how Joseph is at the age of 17 at the time that he is sold into slavery by his brothers. I wish we knew exactly how old he is at this particular point in time because depending on how long he has been in Potiphar's house when this episode occurs, it is possible that he is still a teenager. He's a young man. And not only is he a young man, but he's a young man who is a long, long, long way from home. And you know how a young person can feel when they get away from home. When they get away from the protective care of mom and dad. When they get into a place where nobody knows who they are. There's that feeling of, there's that feeling of anonymity. Hey, nobody here knows who I am. 
They don't know anything about me. They really don't even care about who I am and what I do. My mom and dad will never find out. That puts Joseph in particular danger. And then on top of all of that, he is a young man. Emphasis on male. Which means he possesses the same kinds of passions and desires that every red-blooded 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old man would have at this point in their life. And then to complicate all of that even further is the fact that verse 7 tells us that he has a woman who is in essence offering herself to him. I think sometimes we do a disservice to imagine that Joseph is some kind of spiritual superhero and that somehow all of this was just a piece of cake for him. No! He is in a serious predicament here, a serious quandary here. Joseph is vulnerable. And I believe the devil recognizes that. And furthermore, I believe the devil wants to exploit that. And that is why I'm suggesting to you that the battle with temptation needs to start precisely here. It needs to start with having an awareness of where and how we are at risk. That is what Satan is looking for. He is looking for those moments in our life when we are, when we are weak, when we are struggling. He's looking for those moments in our life when we are discouraged or when we're disappointed. He's looking for those areas in our life that are left unguarded and are left exposed. That's his door. That's his opportunity to pounce upon us like the lion that he really is. Can I illustrate that for you? Would you hold your place here in Genesis? Step out. This is the only time I'll ask you to step out. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we get this famous little statement that Paul makes in the New Testament about anger. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is verse 26, where Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then he follows that up in verse 27, which really is just a continuation of the same sentence and the same thought. He then says, And give no opportunity to the devil. So let me ask you, in light of that passage, Do you think that the devil looks at me when I'm sitting in traffic and I'm starting to get a little bit annoyed at all the drivers who are on the road and I'm hitting every single cotton-picking red light on Highway 27 and slowly but surely my road rage is starting to swell, it's starting to build up. Do you think that the devil looks down at me in that moment and says, well, you know, it just wouldn't be fair for me to go after Josh right now. I mean, he's angry. And he's just so easy to get when he's angry. Do you think that's how the devil looks at that? No, he does not. In that moment, the devil is hes licking his chops. That's exactly the kind of vulnerable spot that he's looking for. What about young people? You think the devil doesn't know that when one of our young people gets surrounded, gets swamped, gets bombarded on every side by a bunch of kids at school, by a bunch of classmates, and there is immense pressure placed upon them to do something that is wrong, like like use filthy language and cuss, that that, that that pressure that's placed upon them to fit in and to be accepted by their peers, you think the devil isn't going to exploit those moments? The devil doesn't care about playing fair. He doesn't care what the numbers look like. He's not going to wait until you are more prepared and you're fully on guard for that. What about in your marriage? Preach last Sunday morning about marriage. The devil understands that when things are going wrong in your home, that when your marriage is on the rocks, 
He knows that that is the perfect time. That is the prime time to introduce some new person who will listen to you and they will hear all of your complaints and your grievances about your spouse. And they will take your side and they will bond with you. And in the course of that, the devil will make fertile that ground so that it is ripe and ready for infidelity. The devil knows when you're at risk. The question before us is, do you and I know when we are at risk? That awareness is so essential. It helps us to be alert. It causes us to stand at attention. It causes us to have our defenses up and ready. It causes us to be prepared to deal with temptation when it comes, instead of just blindly wandering and naively blundering into the devil and the lion's mouth. We need to know when we're at risk. Joseph's story shows us that. Secondly, watch this. If we are going to stand firm in times of temptation, then we're going to have to see the curses in our blessings. But you maybe didn't see that one coming this morning. We need to see the curses in our blessings. As you look here at Genesis chapter 39 and look at these opening verses, can you see the curses in some of Joseph's blessings? When we look there at the text, even at just those first seven verses, it seems to me that there really are two major reasons that Potiphar's wife takes note of him. The first is right there at the end of verse 6, where the Holy Spirit thought that it was important to tell us what a handsome and dashing man Joseph was. Why do you think that that detail is recorded? We don't get lots of details about the looks of everybody else in the Bible. Why do you think that the Bible tells us about that here? Well, it's to set up what's going to happen in the very next verses that follow. This is why Potiphar's wife takes notice of him. He's a good-looking young man. Why, if Joseph had had a more homely appearance, she maybe wouldn't have even noticed him at all, would she? And listen, there can be some benefits to being handsome. I know from first-hand experience. No, I take that back. I'm joking about that. But I've been told that being handsome or being beautiful, that it does have its perks. But you know what? The devil can use that blessing, the blessing of a pleasant appearance and countenance, he can use that to curse us. And that's exactly what he's attempting here with Joseph. Furthermore, did you notice the second thing that really puts Joseph in danger, the blessing that the devil is seeking to exploit here? I think these first six verses in aggregate, they show us that the other reason that Potiphar's wife takes notice of him is because of the position that Joseph has attained to. He starts off in verse 1 as nothing more than just a meager and lowly slave. Gradually, over the process of time, we don't know exactly how long, but over time, Joseph gradually distinguishes himself. He starts to work himself up the ladder, so to speak, until finally he becomes the number one servant in the house. Man, isn't it great to get a promotion? And yet, what did this promotion mean? But what this promotion meant is it meant more time in the house. It meant being more visible to his master's wife's eyes. It meant more attention to her lustful thoughts. It meant more opportunity to be seduced by her again and again and again. In fact, his work, the nature of his work, may have even required him to have to interact with her on a daily basis. Do you see how this blessing of a promotion 
It's actually being used by the devil to curse Joseph. You and I need to see that, yeah, that's the way Satan operated back then. But you know what? That's the way that Satan continues to operate even today. He takes our blessings. Many times the blessings and the wonderful things that God has given to us and placed into our lives, and he twists them and tries to use them to be a curse. Think, for example, about, think for example about our material blessings. We live in the most prosperous nation in all of human history. The vast majority of the people in the other parts of this world, they would gladly trade places with us because of the prosperity that we enjoy. And yet, is there any doubt at all that the devil is oftentimes using that prosperity to distract us, to get us focused on lesser things? The devil uses those things to convince us that you know what? Our earthly toys and all of our earthly trinkets that we have accumulated and that we invest so much in, that those things are way more important than laying up treasures in heaven. The devil has a field day with turning our stuff into a curse. What about technology? I love technology. I think technology is so cool. I think about what I can do with my cell phone. Now I can just call people or send messages to people instantly. I essentially have all of the information that the world has ever known right there at my fingertips. I never ask questions to anybody. I can just Google it. I can just find out right there in the snap of a finger. Technology is amazing. Technology is enabling you to look up here at PowerPoint this morning. And you're able to follow along with the stream of thoughts this morning. I'm able to push this button on this little gizmo and it makes stuff move and move backward. That's all amazing. That's so cool. But does anybody else in this crowd deny that the devil is also corrupting us with our technology? Think about the proliferation of internet pornography, sexting, some of those apps that are used, Snapchat and things of that nature that propagate filth and smut. Can I say to our young people, young people, it's great and it's amazing that God has blessed you with athletic ability, or that you maybe have musical talent, or that maybe you have academic proficiency. You're just really, really smart. But do you realize that the devil will also take blessings even like that? And he will try to curse you with those? You realize that, don't you? The devil will convince you that the really important thing for you to do on Wednesday night is to be down there at the ball field, and you need to pitch at that game. That's really what's most important. Or that you need to be out there at that concert with being in the band to participate in that and that. That's what's most important. Or you need to be home. You need to be studying. You got a big test. College depends on this. You got to focus on that. You don't need to be at church on Wednesday night studying the Bible, learning about, I don't know, stuff like how to live eternally. That's the way the devil operates. And maybe what's really pathetic about all of that, let me stop picking on the kids here, what's really pathetic about all that is when moms and dads have bought into that lie. And they allow their kids, or maybe even push and encourage their kids to be deceived in that way. What are we doing? I'll tell you what we're doing. We are letting the devil take a blessing to curse us with it. That's what we're doing. What we need to do is we need to open up our eyes. And we need to see. We need to see how the devil is operating. His M.O., how it is that he is working in our lives. Otherwise... Otherwise, we're not going to be able to stand firm in the hour of temptation. Now, as soon as I say all of that, somebody is probably thinking, well, Josh, you know, isn't there more to the Joseph story than just these first 
seven verses, and indeed there is. Because the very next thing that the author here in Genesis shows us is this third key for battling temptation, and that is recognizing when not to pause. That is so essential in our battle against sin and temptation, and that is being able to recognize when not to stop and pause. Look again at the last three words of verse 7. In my translation, the last three words are Potiphar's words that she says to Joseph, her proposition, her offer. She says, lie with me. But then notice the first three words of verse number 8. And it shows Joseph's response, but he refused. Don't you love that? But he refused. In fact, drop on down to verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. The very language of the text suggests to us that Joseph did not leave any room for pausing or for considering. It's almost like a knee-jerk reaction as the woman makes these overtures here. She puts the proposition out there and Joseph just reflexively says, No, no. End of story. That's it. End of discussion. He doesn't even give her offer a second thought. And why would he? This is not an issue that he needs to sit down and study about. This is not an issue that he needs to restudy and rethink all the mechanics of this. This is not something that he needed to think about and he needed to weigh all the pros and all the cons and put those on the scales and see which side weighs out the most. No. He knew that this was wrong. And all that was needed on this occasion was a firm no. Somebody maybe says, well, well, that almost seems so obvious that it hardly even deserves a mention. And I will acknowledge that, yes, that point is very obvious. But will you also acknowledge with me that sometimes we are really bad at that? And that is what opens up our world for all kinds of trouble. Truth of the matter is, when we want to do something, even when we know it is something that God does not want us to do, even when we know it is something that we should not do, but we really, really, really want to do it anyway, when we give that temptation the time to pause and to think about it and to consider it, in that moment, we can justify in our minds just about anything, even things that we know are sinful and wrong. That is exactly why when we are confronted with something that that there is no doubt about, it is absolutely clear, this is wrong, this is sin, then anything in that moment but a firm, uncompromising no, even a pause, is a step in the wrong direction. We need to recognize and call out sin for what it is so that we can then act swiftly and decisively and then flee from it. Which brings me to this fourth observation from Genesis 30, chapter 39. Because Joseph goes on to show us that if we are going to be victorious in the battle of sin, with sin and temptation, then we're going to have to fourthly, we're going to have to be deeply convicted. Verses 8 and 9 are probably my favorite verses in this story. They are so impactful. Because not only do they tell us the words and the response that Joseph said to Potiphar's wife, But the response that he gives here actually opens up the curtain to Joseph's mind. It gives us some insight as to his thought process. It gives us some insight as to his motivation for refusing this wicked woman's advances. Look at verse 8. 
But he refused and he said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Notice there, it's almost as if Joseph has greater respect for the vows that Potiphar and his wife said to one another than Potiphar's wife has for those vows. And then verse 9 says, How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? There's a couple of things that stand out to me just from those two verses there. First of all, verses 8 and 9 say to me that even though Jacob, Joseph's father, even though he had his shortcomings as a father and as a parent, and I really didn't hold back from highlighting that last Sunday night when I preached on Genesis 34, Even though Jacob's parenting left a lot to be desired, I'm pretty confident in saying that somewhere along the way, he taught his son that sex outside of marriage is wrong. And his son remembered that. Please notice in verse 9 that Joseph did not say to this woman, "Eh, this probably isn't a good idea. Or you know, I, I don't think this is wise. That's not the words that he uses. He says, this is evil. Other translations say, it is a great wickedness. At some point in his life, Joseph's daddy sat him down and told him, fornication is a sin against God. And now here in this moment, In the actual moment of temptation, Joseph draws upon that knowledge and furthermore, he draws upon that deep-seated conviction and is able to stand firm. That conviction provided for him the determination not only to say the right thing in this moment, but also the ability to do the right thing. And we need that. We need that in space. You and I need to be people of deep and abiding conviction. That begins, of course, with this right here, doesn't it? That begins with the Word of God. That our ideas about right and wrong, our standards of conduct, our morals need to be deeply rooted in what God says. Our ideas about right and wrong are not rooted in what culture says, what popular opinion says, the current trends of the time. No. We base those decisions on what God has revealed through His Word. But I need to say that that needs to be a whole lot more than just digesting the information in here. It needs to be more than just having a knowledge of what this book says. It needs to be more than just some intellectual understanding of what the Bible teaches. That's not enough. What needs to happen is, is we need to be convicted by that knowledge. We need to believe deep in our heart of hearts that God is right and He's always right and that He absolutely knows what is best for us. That God is right about sexual immorality. That God is right about lying and deception. That God is right about cursing and filthy communication. That God is right about drugs and alcohol. The list goes on. I need to believe with every fiber of my being that listening to Him, that that's going to be good for me. 
That's going to be very good for me. And ignoring Him, that's ultimately just going to hurt me. That's what it takes to be someone who is deeply convicted so that when I am staring in the face of my own Potiphar's wife, I'll know what God wants me to be. And I'll know what God wants me to do. And I will have the determination to do it. And I just say right here as an aside, that that's what we need to be instilling into our kids as well. Moms and dads, it is important that we teach our kids the information that's contained in the Bible. We want them to, to have a knowledge and an understanding of stories just like this and all the other things that the New Testament and the Old Testament teaches. We want them to know that. But furthermore, we don't just want them to know the what of Scripture. We want them to know the why of it. We want them to have a a faith and a trust and a love for the Lord so that they have a deep conviction for their moment when they're staring into the face of Potiphar's wife. In that moment, they'll know what to do. They'll have the determination to do it as well. We need to be people who are deeply convicted like Joseph was. Which leads me to this final idea this morning. And that is, if we are going to be equipped properly to deal with temptation and be successful in the way that Joseph was, then it is vital just right up front that we anticipate suffering. I must tell you, I really hate making that point. I would rather we just take that off the screen and we just leave it right there, a four-point sermon, as we stand and sing. Don't get up and sing yet, Rick, but... That's what I would prefer. I would prefer it would just stop right here and that's all that we need and hey, we'll be good to go and we'll be ready to deal with temptation. I wish I could do that. Because I don't like this last point. In fact, what I'd really like to say is that if we're going to stand firm against some terrible temptation, that the only thing we're going to need to anticipate in that moment is we're going to need to anticipate glory and celebration. Anticipate that when you stand up against temptation, that you can anticipate that the heavens are going to open up. And angels are going to appear. And they're going to sing. And they're going to rejoice. And they're going to celebrate. Whoa, you did wonderful. Congratulations. That's what I wish I could say. I wish I could say that when you stand firm in the face of temptation, that people will just line up. And they're going to come to you. They're going to want to shake your hand and congratulate you and pat you on the back and give you a thumbs up and give you a medal for resisting that. Wouldn't that be great? That's not what happened to Joseph. I read in verses 8 and 9 and 10, and I see a young man who had great faith, and he had great courage, and he exercised great conviction. And I think to myself, well, he ought to be given an award for that. But what actually happens? Verse 11, Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, That Hebrew slave whom you brought to us, He came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Verse 19. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me. Potiphar's anger burned. 
And so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. Joseph's reward for doing the right thing is jail, incarceration. I don't know about you, but I read these verses and my blood just begins to boil. This is so unfair. What a wicked and evil woman here. If ever there was a guy who deserved a medal of honor for doing the right thing, it's Joseph. He didn't get a medal. Instead, he got sent to prison. There's a lesson there for you and me, isn't there? Sometimes the reward for doing the right thing, sometimes that reward is not experienced right here and now in the moment. In fact, sometimes the very opposite is true. When what we get in the moment is we get suffering. I'd love to be able to stand up here and tell our young people, young people, that if you're if you're at a party and your friends crack open a case of beer and they start passing around alcohol, and if you say, no, I, I don't drink, I don't do that, I don't participate in that, I'd love to be able to tell you that all of your friends, they're all going to say, well, you know what, we really respect you for that. You know, we really admire your convictions. High five, good on you. But I can't tell you that. Because in all likelihood, that's not going to happen. In all likelihood, what those friends are going to say is they're going to say, oh, okay, more beer for me. Or maybe some will be like Potiphar's wife and they will press you. They will push you to see exactly how committed you are to that reality. And yes, some of those friends, they will ridicule you. They may even unfriend you because you don't go along with the crowd. I'd like to stand up here and be able to tell our young ladies, that young ladies, if you have somebody in your life who is pressuring you about sex, some boy who's trying to get you to go further than you ought to go, I'd like to be able to tell you that if you take a stand definitively and you draw a line in the sand and you say, hey, sorry, pal, that just ain't happening. That is not going to happen until marriage. I'd like to tell you that what that boy is going to do is he's going to back off and he's going to apologize. And he's going to start going to church with you. And he's never going to bring that up again until you're married. But I can't tell you that. Because in all likelihood, that's not going to happen, is it? What is going to happen is either he's going to keep making those advances and those pressures like Potiphar's wife did, or maybe he'll just dump you and he'll go find some girl who is willing to disrespect herself and sleep with him. More often than not, taking an unpopular stand, what it's going to lead to is suffering. And what we need to do is right now, we just need to expect that. We need to just anticipate that that's what's going to happen. Somebody maybe is thinking right now, well, Josh, if if doing the right thing, if it just leads to pain and suffering, then, then why should we bother with doing the right thing? And of course, you know the answer to that question. And that is that it always pays off to do the right thing. And when I say that, I know that there are people who are thinking, yeah, okay, yeah, I know, I get that. You get to go to heaven. When life is over, if you do the right thing, you get to go to heaven after you die. Don't be trivial about that. Don't treat that like that's some kind of a light thing. That's a big deal, getting to go to heaven. But you know what? That's actually not what I'm talking about. I don't believe that we have to wait all the way until judgment day to figure out that doing the right thing, it pays off even before judgment day. Joseph, in his story, 
Joseph didn't have to wait till judgment day to find out that doing the right thing pays off. Yes, he did have to suffer for a season. He spent some considerable time in that prison cell. But if you know what happens in the next couple of chapters, Genesis 40 and Genesis 41, then you know he ultimately gets out of that dungeon. He gets promoted to second in command in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. He then uses that position to save his family, a family that I will remind you is the family from which the Messiah comes. You see, Joseph didn't have to wait all the way till Judgment Day to reap the rewards of doing the right thing. And I don't believe that we have to wait that long either. When I was in high school, and when I was in college, I repeatedly was offered opportunities to be involved in drugs and in drinking alcohol. And repeatedly, time and time again, I said no to those overtures. I said no to the opportunities to consume those things, to put those things in my body. Did I get ostracized and get ridiculed for that? Yes, I did. Did that feel good? No, it did not. But I can tell you with 100% certainty that in the 20 years years so since that time, I have never ever once thought to myself, man, you know what my biggest mistake was in high school? I just didn't drink enough booze. Man, I really should have drank more booze back then. Man, you know what? In college, I really wish I had smoked dope. My first roommate, he was a pothead. I really wish I would have just smoked some doobies with that guy. Not once has that thought crossed my mind. I've never met a Christian who has said, you know what? My greatest regret is that I didn't sleep around more before I got married. You know, I just really wish that I had been more promiscuous before I got tied down. Nobody says that. Never have I met anyone who says, you know what, if I could go back in time, jump into a time machine and go back in time and do it all over again, what I'd do is I'd tell more lies. And I'd do a whole lot more gossiping. And I'd steal. And I'd break the law. And I'd do this and I'd do more of that. No! No one thinks in those terms. No one who's a person of God thinks in those terms. When we do the right thing, we look back at our lives and what happens is, is we are thankful We are grateful to God that we did not give in to those temptations so that we could enjoy the passing, fleeting pleasures of sin for a moment. Our reward in the here and the now is that we have a clear conscience. Our reward in the here and the now is the confidence and the assurance that I'm in a right relationship with God. Our reward in the here and the now is the joy and the peace and the hope that only God's faithful children can know. Our reward is the abundant life that Jesus promised that we can have in the here and in the now. I'll say again, you don't have to wait all the way till Judgment Day to know that doing the right thing pays off. But when that day does come, you will be so glad that you were willing to endure that little bit of suffering in this life so that you could be suited and you could be prepared for the eternal life that is to come. Joseph's story encourages us to bear up. And his example shows us that you know what? It is possible to stand firm whenever the enemy makes his assault simply a matter of us getting equipped, putting our armor on, and being prepared for that battle. Now, can I tell you what really is the ultimate key to victory that really ties together all these things here? 
The real key to victory that's actually sprinkled all throughout Genesis, the 39th chapter. Four times in this chapter, if you count, four times the Bible says, and the Lord was with Joseph. The reason that Joseph was prepared, the reason that Joseph was able to stand firm against temptation is because he was in fellowship with God. And the truth of the matter is this morning, if you are outside of Christ, then what that means is, is that means that you do not have fellowship with God. And what that means, practically speaking, is that means you are a sitting duck for the attacks of the evil one. The only people who have the promise and the assurance of God's protection and His care and His help and His strength are those who are in Christ. Those who are walking in the light. And if you have never been baptized into Christ, then this morning we would love to help you to become obedient to the Gospel and to access all of the wonderful blessings that are only found in Christ. If you have been baptized, but maybe through your own carelessness, or maybe through your lack of conviction, maybe you have fallen back into sin, and as a result you have fallen out of fellowship with God, then brother or sister, we pray and hope that you see the urgency to repent. To seek the Lord's forgiveness once more, to do that this morning, so that you can be restored to a right relationship, to fellowship with your Heavenly Father once again. Whatever your need may be, let's all of us be able to leave here this morning and have it be said of us, and the Lord was with, fill in the blank with your name. If you need help with filling in that blank this morning, then we encourage you to come forward and express your desires. Do that while we stand, while we sing.